Peter uh, was never very good at small talk. In fact, he was terrible at it. He was terrible at telling jokes to get started. He didn't know how to do that. And when he tried it, it generally backfired. There's a famous example of that in his, his second epistle where he complains about Paul writing obscure words which are hard to understand, which have given the church 2,000 years of you know, humorous reflection on the, the gap between Peter and, and Paul. And so in Acts 2, 42, or, uh, 14, uh, when he says that these people are not drunk, it's only nine in the morning, um, once again, he, he, it's a joke that just didn't work. It, it just didn't work. He was trying to make sense of, these, of this amazing thing that has just happened. And in fact, that's the question on everybody's lips. They don't actually want Peter to tell any jokes. They just want him to explain what just happened. And that's really the whole, the whole thing about Acts 2. There's three bits in Acts 2, and this is the kind of sling between two great stories. The first story is of the, of the descent of the Spirit in the form of tongues of fire on the church. An absolutely unprecedented moment, and people are trying to figure out what just happened. And Peter fumbles it by saying something like, hear me now and believe me later, which doesn't work. And then he says, it's only 9 a.m., we aren't drunk, suggesting that they are gonna be drunk later, which is another bit of confusion that he created. So Peter's just not good at queuing things up. It's just never been his gift. He's more likely to wade right into the middle of something and make a mess of it. Now, we're fortunate that Peter's stories are not, for the large part, told by Peter. You know, Peter didn't write a gospel per se, uh, Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel. It's the story that Peter told Mark, and we are fortunate to have Mark, the, the disciple of urgency, to tell us that story. And the book of Luke is written, I mean, the book Luke and Acts are written by Luke. So Dr. Luke, he, he had kind of two parts. Part one was the gospel, and part two, we call it Acts of the Apostles, but it's really Luke is a storyteller. And while Peter is no good at queuing things up, Luke is excellent at it. He's just really good at telling a story. He knows how to get it in the perspective. And so we're fortunate that Luke took this story and chose to tell it to us in a way that kind of puts it in the right frame, the right perspective. Uh, Luke, uh, as an example, is the person responsible in Luke 4, 18, when Jesus came into his ministry after the temptation in the wilderness, do you remember that story? And he came back to his hometown and, it, and he stands up in the synagogue and he starts his ministry by claiming that Isaiah 61 is actually fulfilled in their presence. And he says in Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. That text, everybody knows that text. And for this boy who's grown up before them to stand up and claim that he's the reason that that text was written, well, a riot broke out. 
And uh, in verse 28 of, of chapter 4 of Luke, it says, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now that's a way to cue up a story. And Luke does that with, with uh, Jesus' story and his coming into, into his ministry. And he does that again in a second chapter of Acts. When it comes to Luke's time to tell the story, he sort of rushes right by Peter's failed joke and says what Peter said was, and then he quotes scripture, which everybody in their hearing has heard the scripture. They've not only heard it, they've always heard it. They've heard it, been, they've been saying the scripture for a thousand years. They've been proclaiming that these words are gonna come true. Anytime there's trouble, there's someone that says, well, in the last days, this is what's gonna happen. But in Luke's account of Acts 2, what Peter does is stand up and in the same way that Jesus took credit, took responsibility, made those words come forward and said that they're being fulfilled in our hearing today, Luke says that Peter stood up and said, and it's uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, the, the words that we heard read. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now, this is a quote from Joel 2. We hardly know anything about Joel, the book of Joel. We don't really know when it was written, who it was written to. Just from the references within the book, it sounds like it's, it's in the exile period. But it's not a story that... Uh, that is associated with any specific uh, people or any people at a specific time. But the story that, that uh, Joel lays out is of, is of people in trouble, people who don't know what's going on, people who can't figure out what just happened, which is precisely where Peter is. And so Peter stands up and says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And he flips the verse, by the way, in Joel, it says, your old men will dream dreams. But Peter mixes that up and says, your young men will see visions first. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. Shall I say that again? Both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and on the signs on the earth below. When he says these words, people are reciting them with him because they know them by heart. And when he says this remarkable thing, in the same way that Jesus said, this is being fulfilled in your hearing today, when Jesus came into his ministry, when the church comes into being, for Peter to stand up and say, these words are fulfilled in what has just happened to us is an absolutely dramatic and profound moment. Peter is placing the church, and it barely is the church. It's only been the church for about a half hour. Peter is placing the church smack dab in the middle of God's providence. It's a new idea. They never thought this would happen. They thought the Messiah would come and change everything. They didn't know that the Messiah would come and create a church that would change everything. This pause... This, this parenthetical statement turns out to be the most important thing that Jesus brought that no one anticipated. No one was anticipating this moment. No, of all the things that Peter could say, no one thought that he would say this. 
of all the scripture that could be claimed to be fulfilled at this moment, no one thought that this was the fulfillment because he's bringing forward into the present a thousand years of thinking and saying, before this, it might have happened in small ways, but today it's happening is the fulfillment of it. Now that, that phrase, the Spirit came upon, is a really important one. Um, it's been used in the Old Testament in, in, uh, in describing any time that God involves himself in situations, any time God involves himself in circumstances, any time God acts, any time God interjects himself into the situation. In Numbers chapter 5, there's a, an amazing and kind of weird story, actually, about the Spirit of the Lord coming down on Moses. And it says that he, Moses, shared some of the Spirit that had been given to him with the 70 elders, and they prophesied. I don't know how that works exactly. They only were able to do it once. They prophesied once, and then they didn't. I guess it had a, a use date, you know. And, uh, and two that were not present also received the Spirit, and they prophesied. But this was not what happened in Acts 2. This is one thing that happened to Moses, and for one moment happened for 70, not for 3,000. In, in the book of Samuel, Samuel told Saul that the Spirit would come upon him, and he would prophesy. And just as, as Samuel said it would happen, it happened. Saul uh, was among the, the asses. Do you remember that phrase? He was, Saul met a group of prophets prophesying, and he started doing the same thing. But that's not Acts 2. That's just one man. And uh, Saul, again, he's hunting David in 1 Samuel 19. And uh, when Saul came to the place where David was, and he was going to take David, the Lord... The Spirit of the Lord came on Saul, and he was prophesying instead of hunting all of a sudden. And he wasn't able to fulfill what he came to do. That wasn't Acts 2. In Numbers, the Spirit of the Lord came on Balaam, so he couldn't curse Israel like he wanted to. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, who, and the Lord gave him an amazing victory. But that wasn't Acts 2. Three times the Spirit of the Lord is recorded as coming on Samson. But none of those are act two. And in fact, it's only the Spirit of the Lord coming on an individual in a very specific situation until Jesus comes. And in Luke 4, it says, Jesus says about himself, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And before that, it's always been an individual. And with even Jesus, it's with an individual. Now it's for the whole church. What an amazing thing when you think of it. The rest of that phrase is also important. The phrase pour out, because it says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit is poured out upon me. The, the word that is used pour out is complicated. It's used metaphorically and it's used literally. It can mean to pour out like, like pour a cup of tea or, uh, you know, these guys are drunk. No, we haven't poured anything yet. That, that kind of use, a very simple use of the word, it's also used repeatedly to talk about what happens when the blood pours out from a sacrifice. And so when the hearers of this, of this words from um, Peter, when they hear him say, pour out, they think blood. And it also means to pour out your lifeblood. I gave him my life. I poured out my life for that kid. 
I poured out my life for this church. I poured out my life for that cause. To lay down your life, to pour out your life blood. That's the association of that. It's, it's amazing to me that um, God pouring out his spirit means the same thing as a person pouring out their life blood. Think about what that means. That God poured out his spirit on the church is, a, is an absolutely remarkable moment. And so when Peter says the spirit will be poured out, he's claiming something for the church that's never been claimed. Only three times in the Old Testament is that phrase, pour out my spirit, used. In Ezekiel, I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel. In Zechariah, I'll pour out my spirit on the house of David. And in Isaiah, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. And that's the first time that the idea of being poured out is given to a group. And Peter stands up, and when they say, what just happened? He stands up and says, Pentecost just happened. It's not something trite like pour me a drink, I'm drunk at nine in the morning. It's not something social like pour me a cup of tea. It's not something random like it's starting to rain. Uh, it's, there's gonna be a downpour. This is something completely different. They've never seen this. There's no anticipation of it. There's nothing to anticipate or to, to um, predict it. It's unexpected. Peter says, what just happened? It's a deluge. It's God pouring himself out on the entire church. The 3,000 of you who have gathered here, this has never happened in the history of the world and it will probably never happen again. It's a torrent. You're drowning in it. You're flooded by it. You're soaked to the skin. It, it changes everything. It's a tsunami. Acts 2, and if the question that Peter is to answer is, what just happened? Acts 2 is the Niagara of the Spirit. It's the Iguazu Falls. It's the Marina Trench of transformative grace. It's the rogue wave of righteousness. This is beyond anything that anyone's ever seen. The people who have gathered there together for the first time in history, they're the cliff divers of the future. That's what God calls us to. Can you see how different this was than anything that's ever happened before? Even Peter is astounded at what's happened. And he says, we are called from the dream to being the dreamers. It's switched from being outside of us to being inside us. We're called from the prophecy to being the prophesiers. We're called from the future into the present. We're called from the imagined to the enacted. On the most ordinary day, in the plainest of circumstances, on the train you always take to work, or at the stop sign where you always have to wait, while you're reading in your favorite chair, when you got up to get a drink during halftime, at the table where you always sit for lunch, in the middle of another call, halfway through shaving, on the way out to get the mail, while you're just reaching for the phone, just outside your kitchen window, as you turn to tell your companion something or ask a question, 
by the time you reached the end of the chapter, before anyone knew what was happening, before church was over, out of the blue, with no warning, not a cloud in the sky, life barges in, Pentecost, a deluge. You're drenched by God. You get filled up, swamped, transformed over the cliff of the falls. That's what Pentecost is. It never was expected to happen, and when it did happen, no one could explain why it did happen. It only expected to happen because God was pouring out his lifeblood, his spirit, on the people of God to become his church. Every moment of our lives, every moment of worship, every time we gather, every time we open the scripture, every time we bow our heads in prayer, every time we turn our hearts toward God, even when we don't, even when we're ignoring God, even when we think that God is nowhere around, even when we're doing things that God has nothing to do with and that we hope he doesn't see, even those times where we're completely absorbed with something else, in every one of those moments now, the potential exists for Pentecost. This is an amazing thing. This is what is remarkable. This is what makes the church the body of Christ, the lifeblood vessel of Christ. This is what makes the church so different than what was expected. It's not external anymore. It's, never, it's, not, it's become internalized. It's, it's, it's first person personal. It's not the second person. It's the predicted to the realized. And suddenly when we realize that that can happen for us, and that can happen for the entire community of faith, we see that, that God's been about that the entire time. He's been speaking to people in that way, pouring out, pouring in, pouring through people's lives those things which imagine them to be the people of God. And Abraham imagined a better country and set out to find it. Isaiah imagines a lion and a lamb lying down together. Joshua imagines a nomadic people settling in homes in the promised land. Ruth, the widow, imagines a new life for herself and her mother-in-law and a baby on her knee. Micah imagines swords pounded into plowshares. Joseph imagines a nation that could feed the world during a great famine. David imagines a capital city that becomes Jerusalem. Moses imagines people freed from slavery and return to their homeland. Israel imagines walking on dry land through the Red Sea, and it actually happens. Solomon imagines a great temple. Jeremiah imagines a new covenant. Nehemiah imagines that the walls of the city can be rebuilt and the exiles can come home. Esther imagines that a brave young queen just might be able to save her people. Jonathan imagines a king and the boy David, and he helps make it so. Noah imagines a boat big enough that he could save the family and maybe the whole world. Deborah imagines a code of conduct that could be fair and just. Paul imagines a community where there is no slave or free, no Greek or Hebrew. John imagines a city coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Young women and men see dreams, see visions. Old men have dreams. Our true heritage of faith 
is a journey of surprise after surprise after surprise. That's what happens when you're drenched by God. That's why Pentecost is so important. We move from the ethereal to the embodied, from the status quo to the status dynamis, where everything is in constant flux. From dream to dreamers, from many to one. That's the promise of Pentecost. So what does Pentecost mean? What kind of dreamer will you be? How does it internalize for you? For some, Pentecost means the power to live intentional and productive lives using all the skill that we have to our greatest capacity. For some, Pentecost means the experience of growing continually with greater and greater effectiveness, new, new experiences, peak performances, always growing towards something that we've never held on to before. For some, Pentecost means finally knowing who we are, living by our best values, choosing our own course, developing the ability to love one another. For some, Pentecost is experienced by responding with trust and grace to the demands that are immediate, the needs that are before us, the community that presents itself, and by finding within ourselves a chance, an opportunity, the capacity for commitment to a unique task. For some, Pentecost means embracing the grace of a loving God and accepting the joy and freedom that comes from being given a new heart and a new spirit. For the new humanity, Pentecost means living constantly in the presence of God, encountering God in every moment of every day and expressing our gratitude and love and devotion. There's a great text in the book of Samuel right in the middle of the story of how God called Samuel to be a judge over Israel when Samuel was just a boy. And the call quite literally came in the middle of the night and Samuel, innocent young child that he was, had no idea what was happening. There was nothing that could have made him anticipate this. Three times God spoke to Samuel and each time the boy mistook it for the voice of his, of his master, Eli. Finally, old man Eli tells him that it's God speaking to him and that if it happened to him again, he should say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And sure enough, God spoke to him again. And Samuel responded just as Eli had told him. And then the Lord says a really strange thing. You should look it up. They didn't tell us the story when we learned it in juniors. He finally connects with this young boy who will become the judge and will anoint Saul and then David, the great king. The scriptural account is that at this momentous moment, speaking to a child, the Lord of the universe says, quote, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. Have your ears started tingling? They will. Let's pray. Father, drench us with your love. Renew us with your grace. Transform us by your imaginative and creative power. Easter in us and Pentecost our hearts, our hands, our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.